Good morning. My name is Elliot, and today I'll be reading from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 19. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Trinity Heights, and uh, we are in week six now of reopening our public services. And actually, in a way, what we're doing is replanting this congregation. So it's more than just restarting public services, we're really replanting this church. So if you didn't know what you were walking into this morning, you're walking into a brand new church plant in in many respects. And I I think it's always good to so to make sure that things don't become just route and, and sort, of, uh, a sort of a legalism and just this thing that we do mindlessly and unreflectively. So before we jump into our message this morning, I just want to take a moment, be a little bit self-conscious and, and, and just ask, you know, what are, what are we doing? Part of every single week in the rhythm of the life of the church is that we, we teach from a passage of scripture. What do we think we're doing when we do this and why are we doing it? Well, well, there's all sorts of uh, ways that we could describe this, but here's, here's one way that I found particularly helpful for me personally. When, when we're living our lives, maybe we go to work and there's a particular culture at work, or, or maybe we read a book, or we read the newspapers, or we read something online, or we watch Netflix, or watching a movie. Um, we are inundated with stories, story after story. Um, all day, every day, and, and these stories carry values. Sometimes there's overlap between these stories and these values, sometimes there isn't, but these stories carry their own values. And so what's essentially happening is we are being inculcated with these values constantly, uh, and it's shaping us as, as people, as human beings. And so essentially what we're doing on a Sunday morning when we teach from a passage of scripture, what we're doing is we are narrating the story that we want to shape our community. We're telling, we're saying this is the story that we want to grip our hearts in our better moments. This is the story we want to grip our hearts. This is the story we want to shape us as, as human beings, as people. Uh, and and we're, we're, so essentially what we're doing is we're narrating our lives together. Um, okay, so that's what we're about to do. And that said, uh, I, I want to um, start off uh, this morning by asking this question. If you are a Christian here this morning, and I know not everyone is, but if you are a Christian this morning, you may, I just want to ask, do you find it easy to talk about your faith to other people? Do you find it really smooth and just as easy, not, not awkward at all, easy conversation that just flows naturally out of you uh, with the world around you? Or is it a little awkward and is it a little bit embarrassing sometimes uh, and is it kind of difficult and you find people a little bit apathetic and just disengaged and they're not really interested? Uh, how, how does that feel? In an increasingly secularized cultural context, uh, actually what I'm hearing more and more is that people are finding this increasingly difficult to talk about their faith. 
If you uh, identify more as a skeptic this morning, uh, I want to ask you this. Do you sometimes find it difficult to understand your Christian friends when they start going on about this stuff? Is it, is it a little bit difficult to engage? Do you feel a little bit distant from the conversation? Are they talking about something ephemeral and, and sort of detached from our everyday lives? Um, if you are a Christian and you find it difficult to make yourself understood, and if you are a skeptic who finds it hard to understand your Christian friends, uh, I want to suggest uh, one reason, and this is just one amongst many, I'm sure, but one reason why that might be the case. And I think it has something to do with the way that the church has been quite deliberately, on purpose in fact, quite intentionally, training Christians to talk about their faith, to talk about the Christian story. And what we've been doing for decades, especially here in America, is we have been training Christians to talk about the Christian narrative always in the context of, always in connection to the afterlife, the afterlife. And so we've been asking people, if you, you know the questions, if you die tonight, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? Right? We've been asking, do you know you will spend eternity with God? We've been asking these questions. You're familiar with these questions. We've been asking people questions about heaven, and we've been asking people questions about hell. We've been asking people questions about their, what is your immediate post-mortem experience going to be? Well, I don't know. But, but this is, here, here's how this conversation goes. And I'll just give you, the, I've shared this story before, but I'll, I'll share it again because it's a quintessential uh, example of, of the problem. And I, and I have been so much part of the problem. Uh, so I remember years ago, I'd recently become a Christian. I was about 20 years old or maybe 21. And I was in college and I was in Bristol. And I was going to hand out tracts, Christian tracts, to people on the streets. And so in order to embrace myself for this absurd thing that I was going to do, which is to talk to the British public about God, just don't do that. I always, I always remember one, uh, them taking, uh, politicians taking some, uh, press secretary taking uh, answers, and, and, they said, and they said, oh, we don't do God. There's one particular question, oh, we don't do God. And that was that, that was the end of that conversation. So that's how, so I was going to do this really silly thing and talk to, to people who don't do God. And, uh, and so I'd, I'd, what I'd do is I'd walk up to people and say, Excuse me, I'm one of those really obnoxious religious nutters, and I'd like to give you one of these. And people would kind of laugh and politely take one of my tracks. But I always remember one guy, he took it from me, and he just said, well, wait, wait, I just want to read through this. So he started reading through it. It's a short track. And he started reading through it, and he hands it back to me. He says, eh. He says, I'm not really interested in what can help me in the afterlife. I want to know something that can help me in this life right here. He didn't want my get out of hell free card. He wasn't interested in my eternal life insurance. He, he, he said I wasn't interested. Maybe some of you can relate to that because I've had in the past plenty of conversations like that. These dead end conversations that go nowhere very, very quickly. You had those? Any of you? Some of you? Right, you know what I'm talking about. It got to the point where my wife, Julia, came up to me and came up to me. I mean, she, just, she came and said, she said, look, I don't really know why we're telling people this and why anybody would be interested. Why, why are we saying this stuff and why would anybody be interested in engaging on this? Now, I can tell you, when a, when, as a pastor, when your wife comes to you and says, why are we saying this? <laughs> and why is anyone interested? That gives you pause. You've got to stop and go, wait, what, what, what's going on here? Why, why are these questions not working? Now, I'm not, look, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that questions about life after death and what happens when you die and our post-mortem experience aren't important. Every philosopher will tell you, yes, these are important questions, but perhaps that's not the place where we want to begin our conversations. 
Does, does that make sense? We may not. And so what I want to do first of all this morning before we, we jump into the text, I just want to ask this question, um, is, is what's going wrong? Why do these questions fall why do these discussions fall flat on their face? Why do they go nowhere fast? Why do they result in awkwardness and embarrassment and, and, and this sort of uh, apathy? I think you could call it apathy. You're an atheist, agnostic. No, I'm just apathetic, right? So what, what, why, does it, why do we end up there? Um, I want to offer one suggestion. I think what's happening many times is we're trying to bring people into different points of, of this conversation. And there's different points we can bring them in. God loves you. There's a point of the conversation. You can be forgiven. There's another point of the conversation. Um, you, you, here's how your post-mortem experience can be. Here's what can happen when you die. There's another point of the conversation. But here's the problem. At every single one of those points, people have to, in order to engage there, they have to have already bought into a whole load of other things in order to really fully engage in, in that, at that point, right? So I can, I can say that the Bible says, I don't believe the Bible, the Bible's just a, a book uh, full of uh, ancient superstitions. Uh, yeah, yes, but God loves you, well, I don't believe in God, but, but you can be forgiven. Well, I don't feel guilty. I, 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 don't, uh, I, I don't even believe in the concept of sin. You know, they've, they've done studies and they're saying that this is the least guilty, or at least the least guilty feeling, generation. So that conversation is going nowhere for us, right? It's the least guilty generation, least guilty feeling generation. Uh, we, we can say, look, here's how you can go to heaven, or what happens after death. Here's your post-mortem experience, how it could be better, right? Um, here's how you can have a turn. I, I don't believe in a life after death. I think once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. You're rotten in the ground. You're, you're, you're worm food. Right? So these conversations go. So the trouble is people have to buy into so many different aspects of this conversation before, before they can really engage. And so what happens is there's apathy. Look, for us, these are the great articles of the faith, but for, for many skeptics, these are just wild metaphysical speculation, right? Oh, yeah, sure. You can believe whatever you want. That's, that's good for you. Um, uh, but there's just this sort of apathy towards it. And, and so uh, people find it hard to engage, and so they, they, don't, they don't engage. So, what I would suggest is, is what we need is we need the kind of conversations, the kind of questions where people can already engage because they're already invested in the conversation. They, they, they already got a stake in it. They can already engage, immediately engage, because they're already deeply invested and have already got a huge stake in the conversation themselves, regardless of whether they've bought into all or some or none of the Christian narrative. Because I think... Those are the kinds of conversations Jesus would spark. I really don't think, you know, he was like me when I'm on one of my rants and people just switch off, you know. And I, know, I, know, I know I've done it and people switch off and go, eh, I'm checking out, right? I don't think Jesus was like that. I think Jesus was this masterful, he'd start these conversations which people wouldn't, weren't apathetic about. You couldn't be apathetic because these people were engaged. They would lean in because they already had a huge stake. They were already themselves personally invested in the kinds of things that he was talking about. I think those are the kinds of conversations he started. We, we've been doing this in a way in the last few weeks we've been trying to um, pick up some questions uh, which uh, I think everybody's invested in, in so, at some level whether they know it or not so we might have questions about uh, we've asked questions like what is progress and, and what is violence the last couple of weeks um, they seem like silly questions but it's incredible the kinds of conversations that these have started with all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, because look if, if let's just say if some of your friends read the New York Times or the New Yorker or, or the Atlantic they're already deeply invested in concepts of violence and peace and concepts of, of progress they're deeply invested in that and, and so what I want to do this morning is I want to add another one of those 
questions to our list of silly sounding questions. Well, they're actually quite important questions. And the question this morning is, the one we always ask around here, what does it mean to be human? Okay. Uh, and I know it's one of those questions which we think, oh, we know the answer to that, right? But it's a strange thing, a strange thing, because while you and I know the answers, it seems that, that philosophers have been asking this for millennia. And, and the answer doesn't seem that obvious. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian philosopher like Soren Kierkegaard or you're an atheistic philosopher like Friedrich Nietzsche. This is the question at the forefront of their minds. And, and I think what happens is sometimes we, we are, we're so, um, we get so myopic and we actually think, we actually believe that the way we answer that question is the way that this question has always been answered. Not the natural way, the normal way, the, the right way. In fact, I was, I was talking to Elliot, uh, who just did our reading this morning. Thank you, Elliot. I was just talking to Elliot a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me that in, in, he's just started high school, right? And, and just a few weeks ago, he started high school, and he's telling me that he's sitting in class, and he said already some of his teachers have drawn a very a sort of imaginary magic circle around their definition of what it means to be human, and they've said, hands off. You, you, you don't get to debate this. We don't get to discuss this. This is, this is not up for grabs. But of course, that's an imaginary magic circle around, this, this doesn't exist, it's not true. It's not true that this definition of what it means to be human is, is, is always, been, that has been defined in many different ways throughout the millennia. And it's not always the natural way and the normal way and the, the right way. And, and of course, by natural and, and right, what I, what I mean is, is human beings seen as equals. Everyone should have the same rights. Everyone, everyone is worthy of love. Everyone is worthy of respect. The egalitarian picture of humanity. Well, says Nietzsche, okay, second time in six weeks, all right. Well, says Nietzsche, that version of humanity is a Judeo-Christian invention. That version of humanity, where we talk about the rights of individuals, or human rights, that human being is a Christian fiction. And so what I want to do now is I want to show you the deep story where this Christian fiction emerges. Uh, I want to show you the origins of what Nietzsche calls a Christian invention, the origins of the human being. What I'm going to say next is something that, uh, for the next five minutes, I'm going to talk about something which some of you, I hope, will be able to recite. You'll go, oh, I know this already, because we've talked about this quite a lot here at Trinity Heights. And so that would be great. I would love it. Here's one of my ambitions, that I would love it if instead of talking about, can, do you know if you're going to heaven when you die, we get to the point where every single one of us would be able to walk people through this, this whole discussion, and go from Colossians to these other parts of Scripture and then back again and walk them through this discussion. So hopefully for many of you, this is just a review. You know this. On the other hand, what I'm about to say for the next five minutes is for some of you, it's going to be brand new. You will not have heard this before. Uh, and in fact, every single time I speak on this, every single time, um, not just one person, but several people come up to me or actually reach out to me who are listening online out there um, in the ether, and they reach out and say, hey, I have never heard this before. This is, this is a new, whole new way of, of discussing this. Um, so so uh, I think it's worth going over again this, this morning, okay? So let, let's, let's jump into this story. This, this question, what does it mean to be human, appears uh, in two different places in Colossians, and it appears in this interesting, very short, but very important and very significant phrase, the image of God. It appears in chapter 1, 
where Paul says about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Right? So Paul says that in chapter 1. And in chapter 3, he says it again, where he talks about us being transformed into the image of the Creator. So let, let me just pull these up on the screen for you. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And in Colossians 3, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. What you'll notice is that as he talks about Jesus being the image of God, he also immediately starts talking about through him all things have been created, through him and for him. So there's this connection there of image bearing with the creator and the act of creation. In the second uh, instance where he talks about us being transformed into the image of God, look what it says. It talks about us being transformed into the image of the creator, right? So what he's doing is he, he's taking creator and creation and image bearing and he's putting those two ideas together and what, if it sounds familiar, it should sound familiar because what that does is he's evoking Genesis chapter one. And what he means for us to do, and, and this is the point where this would be worth remembering uh, if you want to walk your friends through this, when what he's doing is he's saying, look, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1. So let's do that. Let's jump from Colossians to Genesis chapter 1. And we read this. Let us make humans in our image. In the image of God. So God made humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is amazing. We've been given a definition of what it means to be human. To be human is to reflect God's image. And to reflect God's image, that's not just a sort of a, an essence or a substance that I simply possess. It, it goes beyond that. It's not just something I possess. It's also a calling. It is a vocation. Right? It's a calling. It's a vocation. We're called to reflect God's love and joy and peace, to multiply God's patience and goodness and faithfulness, to, to reflect God's gentleness and, and, and kindness and self-control. I'm just going through the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians there, you might have noted, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To reflect and multiply God's generosity, God's hospitality. We're called to multiply God's image, to reflect God's image to each other and draw it out from each other. That's the calling. That's the vocation. Of course, the problem is, this doesn't always happen. Eric prayed, as we've been talking about a lot through this series, about war and the violence of war. Fact is, that's on a large scale, but it happens on this, this, this personal level. The fact is, if I'm honest, there are times when I haven't loved, I've hated. Yes, there have been people in my life that I've hated. Maybe you haven't. I've experienced that. There have been times in life where instead of bringing joy into people's life, I make them miserable. Yes, I've done that. I've done that. You still want me as your pastor? I don't know. Well, we'll see. I've made people miserable. Sometimes, instead of making peace amongst people, I've actually ended up being divisive in some way, shape, or form. And I've been divided against someone. Love, joy, peace, patience. Sometimes I just, I've had a terrible temper in the past. I've lost my temper. Kindness. Sometimes I've been just cruel. And so it goes on. And so what's happening every single time that we fail to reflect God's image, what's happening is we are failing we are failing at the task 
of being human. Now, I know, I always say this, and it sounds like a very strange thing to say. How can we fail at the task of being human? A human being is what I am. I get up every day and I do it all day. I'm an expert at it. No, 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 but, but if to be human is to reflect God's image, what's happening when we fail to reflect God's image is we are actually existing at a subhuman level. We're existing at a subhuman level. And every time we choose in that direction, and sometimes it becomes habitual, and we keep choosing in that direction, we are becoming something less than human. Let me just say, we are all on a journey to either become more fully human or something less than human. We're all on that journey together. Okay, now we have this, we're armed with this uh, vocation, this understanding of the image of bearing is a vocation, right, to, to reflect God's image. Let, let's jump back from Genesis uh, and join Paul again in, in Colossians. Right, so we, we jump back into Colossians, and Paul says, he, let's go back to the last slide, he is the son, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of God. Now, many people, many people think that when Paul says this, he is emphasizing the deity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't actually think that's what's going on here. Now, don't, don't mishear me. Don't mishear me. I'm just going to underline this bit. I don't want anyone sending me angry emails afterwards. I am not questioning the divinity of Jesus Christ. I'm actually pretty orthodox in my beliefs about this. Some of you may be surprised, but I, I, I'm, very, I'm very orthodox in this. I believe in the divinity and deity of Jesus Christ, but, but I just don't think that's what's being emphasized here because what he's actually emphasizing is not Christ's divinity, but Christ's humanity because to be human is to reflect God's image, and he says this is the image of the invisible God. He's emphasizing Christ's humanity. But let me just fine-tune this a little bit. He's not simply saying, oh, Jesus is human just like you and me. He, he, Jesus is a human being just like us. No, no, that, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is more devastating or, or more earth-shattering than that. What Paul is doing is he's pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And he's saying here is the first fully-fledged human being. This is what it means to be truly human, and from here on out, Jesus is going to define humanity for us, and from here on out, we're going to wrap our humanity around him. And I just want to pause there for a second, because I want to let that sink in for those of us for whom this is new. I know some of you, this is review, like I said earlier, this is review, but some of you, this is the first time you heard it. Every time I teach on this, several people come up to me or reach out to me and say, hey, this is the, this is the first time I've heard this talked about in this particular way. Right, so, so that's thinking, this is the good news. Here's another way of talking about the good news. The good news is, here is the first fully-fledged human being. Now follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, and he will restore the image of God to you. Now, let me put it another way. Here is the first truly, here's the first fully-fledged human being. Follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, enough to follow him. Follow Jesus, and he will restore your humanity to you. Um, so having said that, I, I now want to, to address, wrap up here by addressing a concern that people have expressed 
at different times when I've talked about this. And, and one of these concerns is that, look, surely if, if we all have to look like Jesus, we all have to reflect God's image like Jesus, then isn't this going to make for a dull, very dull, boring existence? Aren't we all going to become drones and clones and we're all going to look the same and walk around with silly grins plastered on our faces which you can't see behind our masks anymore? Um, but but isn't, isn't, this, isn't this what's going to, to be, become of us? And so this is where I think it's very important, and I want to finish up by doing this, because if you remember, we, we, it was very, very important to tie this conversation about what it means to be human with last week's conversation about uh, God as the creator, and the week before that where we talked about the providence of God, providence, creation, humanity. Remember we said that in this passage, Paul is tightly winding, to, weaving together three strands of, of, of a narrative, compelling narrative, which will produce a certain kind of life. And so let's tie this conversation about what it means to be human to what we were saying in the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, we talked about the providence of God. Now, if we're talking about the providence of God, as in the God who makes things happen to us, remember we talked about the God who makes things happen to us, uh, the, the, the God who, who is basically the puppet master, uh, and he's pulling all our strings and we're his marionettes. The, the, we're just rushing headlong to our ineluctable fate. If, if that's the God we're talking about, then yes. I agree, that would produce a very dull, boring, drab existence. We will all become drones and clones. And... Or, or if we're talking about the creator, and remember last week we talked about, remember this conversation about the creator and how the creator, sometimes we start mixing them up with this sort of language of the first cause and the long chain of causation, the superintelligence, the intelligent designer, remember all, all that, the, 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 the divine mechanic, Remember all that language and how God gets mixed up with that conceptually? And, and if we're talking about the divine mechanic and the intelligent designer, then yes, of course, reflecting that God might become, might lead to this drab, clone, drone existence. But remember, we're talking about the God, the God who is the, the, the ground of our existence at every moment. That's what we mean by God as creator. The, the God who is the ground of our existence at every moment, the ground of the possibility of anything at all. And when we talk about God's providence, we're not talking about the pu puppet master. We're talking about the God who in his providence is sustaining all things and moving all things towards his goal to reconcile all things to himself and to each other. That's where he's taking all this. Creator and providence, providence and creator. Now we're talking about reflecting that God. We'll finish here. But if we're talking about reflecting that God, um, that is an infinite project. And as Stanley Howarth puts it, that is a calling to reflect God's image, is a calling for us as Jesus followers to live interesting lives. Let's pray. Father, there is a grayness and a dullness to, to life when we don't reflect your image. There's a characterfulness, a, a, a colorfulness, an individuality, a personality to life when we do. Father, may we be those people who collectively, together, reflect the image of God, your love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness, your faithfulness, your gentleness, your self-control, your generosity, your hospitality. May we reflect and multiply your image into this world. May we be the people who, in following you, are living those interesting lives. In Jesus' name, amen.